Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 890. On this edition of the podcast, Ben Clemens and Dan Zimborski wade through the American League wildcard matchups. There was a lot of baseball to digest this week, and Ben got to carefully go see some of it in person. Also, Dan, like many of us, feels a little bad for Minnesota. Zips had this as a 62-38, essentially, matchup for the Twins, and it did not really pan out that way. It did not. Well, Zips doesn't know about, you know, the infinite sadness that swirls around <laughs> the Minnesota Twins in the postseason. And here, here's the thing that makes it so depressing as a Twins fan is they don't just lose. They lose to the biggest villains. Following that, Eric Longenhagen and Rachel McDaniel talk about what's going on on the National League side of things. The Marlins are moving on with an exciting young team, and the Dodgers continue to be terrifying. With Clayton Kershaw's recent gem, the pair revisit his postseason reputation and just how phony it is. Look, this is Fangraphs, and we're not going to sit here and take that because I went through, like I'm sure everybody has at some point when they're engaging with this, and for the most part, he's just been really good. Like, it's just not true. (laughs) Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our supporters, like you. Make sure to head over to Fangraphs.com for coverage on every single postseason game this year. Thank you, and enjoy the show. This is Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Dan Zimborski, and we're here to talk about the AL Wildcard Series. Series is? Series I. Series I, Dan? I like that. Series I. Like this, I like the Series or I, I, just, I just like things with double eyes. It just looks classy and Roman. So why don't we start by talking about a series that I watched nearly none of, the Astros Twins Series, just because there was a decent amount of overlap with the Oakland Series that I was recapping. Yeah, that, that is kind of the problem when you have eight games at once, because, yeah, it's cool to have a lot of baseball, but there's only really so much baseball you can really pay close attention to simultaneously. Yeah, I think I picked up most of the series kind of by osmosis, just from seeing other people talking about the biggest plays. And it was also the biggest upset so far per Zips, probably the least big upset in the world imaginable per popular conception of each team, because... Everyone knows the Twins never win any playoff games, and everyone knows the Astros are a powerhouse. But Zips had this as a 62-38, essentially, matchup for the Twins, and it did not really pan out that way. It did not. Well, Zips doesn't know about, you know, the infinite sadness that swirls around <laughs> the Minnesota Twins in the postseason. And here, here's the thing that makes it so depressing as a Twins fan, is they don't just lose, they lose to the biggest villains. Yeah, every they, time. Yeah, they lose to the Yankees every year. Now they lose to the, you know, the trash cananigan Astros. It's like if there's a villain, they lose to it. They're kind of like the hapless ally to James Bond early in a James Bond movie. Because as soon as you see them on the screen, you know, well, well, James Bond is going to kill the supervillain. But this guy, this guy, Smith... 005, I think I think he's probably going to die. Right. Uh, and then and then you know he he falls in a trap or you know he gets killed by a chainsaw or bitten by a man with large mechanical teeth and that's the twins. They're the hapless Bond sidekick. Yeah, do you think there's anything we can learn from this series? Nothing struck me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the problem is you don't really learn a lot, I think from two or three games. Right. Now the Astros would like us to learn that Everything is forgiven now because with these two games, they've somehow silenced all the critics because that's kind of strange. Yeah. They ran a uh, an aggressive nobody believed in us. 
Yeah, no one believed in us, but we won these two consecutive games. Yeah, and it seems to be kind of the opposite, that lots of people believed they were really good and then were disappointed that they had, you know, cheated. There, There's definitely no realistic no one believed in us narrative about the Astros. They were the preseason favorites to win the AL West. But I think teams are just very invested in telling themselves that no one believed in them as kind of internal motivation. And so they've just ignored the fact that, look, everyone believes in them. It's underdog syndrome. I think everybody secretly hopes that they're the underdog because no one wants to be the favorite. No one wants to be, you know, the Yankees and Bad News Bears. Yeah, exactly. There was there was an Onion article some years ago, which I always remember when this kind of thing comes up. It was like every member of family believes they're the family black sheep. I think there's a lot of classic things in that vein, like the Patriots always say no one believes in them, even though they're constantly the favorites, so on and so forth. But yeah. The Astros said no one believed in them. They pretty handily put away the Twins. I guess of interest, Alex Kirilov made his Major League debut in this series, but, you know, went one for four with a single, I believe. So Hey, that was... is an above-average performance for the Astros in this series. <laughs> I mean, against Barrios, I mean, they got five hits that game, so... no. Yeah, two against Urquidy, one against, against Ur- whoever Rayleigh yeah. is. Yeah, obviously Barrios was their picture. They weren't hitting against him. Yeah, I was... Not disappointed in Berrios' performance in this game. He pitched, you know, a decent game. Uh, five innings, one earned run, four strikeouts. But I was I was a little underwhelmed by Berrios this year. He was my preseason Cy Young pick. And that was, you know, not a this is the most likely person to win a Cy Young. But it was an if, if this guy takes a step forward, he's the kind of person with the arsenal to be a Cy Young caliber pitcher. And they're still going to be waiting for that, it looks like. Yeah, and it wasn't like he had a dreadful year or anything. And considering how good uh, Kenta Maeda was for the Twins, right. they can't they can't be too greedy. They can't say, "Oh, well, we 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 failed because he wasn't a side." But you know, they they got you know a pretty top performance from Maeda this year, probably better than they expected. Yeah, from Rich Hill too. They actually had really good starting pitching this year, at least three deep. Yeah, and it's interesting how they did that because it didn't look it looked a little worrisome entering last offseason because they had a number of pictures that were hitting free agency. You had a lot of uncertainty from a guy like Pineda, but they 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 made kind of that Maeda addition from the Betts tray. They added Rick Chill and, you know, eight starts in 60 games is is a pretty good health record from him. Yeah, and Maeda, I mean, everyone's always thought he had a little bit more than he showed in the Dodgers, but he ended up being you know, a much bigger part of that deal than much bigger part of their season than anything anyone expected. He's probably going to be the, the runner up for the AL Cy Young. Yeah, it's interesting. Rich Hill is is fascinating to me simply because you go back to like the 2004, 2005 Cubs and you think of all the, the players that were on that team. Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor, Carlos Zambrano. The, the guy who survived was Rich Hill. <laughs> Noted paragon of health, Rich Hill. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. And it, and he had such a long stretch in his career where he was just barely in baseball. Yeah, it does save some wear and tear on your arm when you are just out of the majors for... I guess yeah. He wasn't out of the majors in any year. Yeah, you don't throw a lot of pitches when you're, when you're unemployed. This is crazy. He actually pitched... He's pitched in every year since 2005 in the majors. Really? I thought there was a missing year or two there since I don't have him in I, front of me. I thought so too, but he pitched four innings in 2010... Eight innings in 2011, five innings in 2014. He kind of covered the gaps with these, like, extremely short stints. 
I do not remember 2013 from him at all. I do not remember his Cleveland Indians. I'm looking at his stats right now, and he was not good. He walked a lot of guys. Not yeah. a lot of, you know, 33-year-old relievers who walk seven batters a game and then 10 batters a game. He walked six and five and a third innings in 16 games the following season. Yeah, and then in 2015, he turned into Rich Hill again. Yeah, I, I like weird careers. The Cubs seem to have a lot of them because Jamie Moyer had that same kind of thing where he outlasted everyone somehow. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Rich Hill did not get to pitch in the playoffs, I believe. He didn't come in in relief, it looks like. And I think he would have been lined up to start game three, unless I've got something wrong here. But just uh, never quite got there. Yeah, I I, I would have liked it because he has pitched. He had pitched in uh, four consecutive playoff series. And uh, it's nice because... He had his second playoff appearance at age 36, and he's made one every year since then. So I think that's that's it's a cool story. I yeah. like these stories. Yeah, let's see. In other AL action, you know, the Yankees and Indians, I guess, is another cursed kind of series, but pretty interesting, uh, at least game two. Game one was just, you know, you, you can't be great every game. And Shane Bieber finally ran into that this year. I think he had his first bad start and it was just poorly timed. Yeah, it was the worst Bieber start I've seen. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't need him as much to overachieve to make me look smart and zips because everybody likes him now. Right. Uh, but it, it was a rough start. And, of course, the Yankees are a dangerous team. I think people were too quick to throw dirt on the grave. I mean, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's a couple weeks. and They had a bad stretch. They, they were missing uh, some of their big hitters. Yeah. It annoys me, but it's, it's a very resilient team. I mean, they led to AL and run scored. The front of the rotation is not bad. They have Garrett Cole. So... I think people just yeah. are the Yankees underdogs. That seems weird. I don't understand why the Yankees weren't more highly regarded, I'd say, going into going into these playoffs. Like we get that they somewhat underperformed on the year, but they're still a really good team. I think I know you don't have your next round zips projections yet, but I don't think the Yankees and Rays, I don't think there's any daylight between them. No, it's it's going to be a very, I can tell you it's a very close projection. When the Rays have a short series, they actually get to use, because m most of being managing and running the Rays is there is a lot of juggling with the rotation. Right. The opener thing, it pretty much happened because they didn't have five starting pictures and they had to get creative. Uh, yeah. It's not like they said, we forego the sanctity of the starting rotation. It, it was just something that was, that was born of circumstances. But, you know... If they have, you know, healthy Snell, healthy Glasnow, healthy Morton, getting to throw those guys a, a disproportionate amount of the time, it's a pretty big deal. I think that it's going to be probably one of the better series, which means, of course, that it's just someone's going to sweep. Yeah, it's just going to be 3-0 and every game will be 10 nothing. I'm excited to see McClanahan. In theory, that adds like a lot of juice to their rotation, or rather, it just adds a lot of juice to their pitching that they can use him to, you know, basically bulk up two innings yeah. whenever they need to. That's a pretty nice uh, boost. It is. It's just like, you know, acquiring a veteran in a way. <laughs> the the Cardinals announcers love to say X guy coming back from the IL is oh, it's like adding somebody at the deadline it in is. a way. It is. If you don't think, especially if you're not already counting on having someone come back, like like right. the Braves essentially added Ian Anderson. And you can't say that 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 was a pretty sweet addition. Yeah, I think I think it's not quite the same in that I would argue that there's a lot higher variance to the, uh, the young players, just kind of an unavoidable variance from the fact that talent levels don't all translate in the exact same way, even if we know how they translate on average. 
Now, now don't groan at this or do groan at this. But if Shane McClanahan pitches really well against the Yankees, will the Yankees rue McClanahan? <laughs> what if I chuckle? Is that okay? It's okay to chuckle. You can you can you can cringe inside, as I'm sure some of the listeners are at this moment. Uh, and I guess yeah, it's worth mentioning the Blue Jays because we're talking about all of the the first round AL series. The Blue Jays played in the playoffs. That was cool. Give them plenty of credit for that. They didn't really, I don't think, have the guns, as it were, to make this year work. No, it feels like it was early for the Blue Jays. They just kind of kind of fell into the playoffs in a way in this expanded season because, you know, they, 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 they don't have all their prospects up. They, they don't have, you know, a whole healthy Nate Pearson. with Yeah, their with pitching staff was devastated by injury this year, at least the, the young part of it. Yeah, and and but th- but they made do with what they had pretty well because I mean Tanner Work was terrible, Chase Anderson was terrible. Yeah, but Ryu did as as well as could be expected. I they they have no reason to complain about him for sure. Yeah, when you're excited about adding Taiwan Walker at the trade deadline, though, that's nothing against Taiwan Walker. It just means that if that's your exciting pickup and he's probably your number two starter, something's gone wrong with the others. He's a perfectly fine average player. If he's your fourth or fifth starter, you're probably pretty happy. But the amount of lifting that they needed him to do for that staff was just a bad sign. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about Alejandro Kirk. It's It feels like there's kind of a chubby new player that everybody loves every year. Right, he's the new Estadio. Yeah, I mean, Estadio, I mean, Bartolo in a way was, was loved on the internet. I mean, I'm the fattest dude in Fangraphs, so I wonder if there's kind of a, this guy kind of looks like me type of thing. Because I think it's it's nice as, as as an overweight guy to say, hey, you know what? I was taller and thinner than this guy at the same age. I think Kirk benefits from a few things. There's the, the big chubby guy who does stuff that we love. Like Dan Vogelbach is liked more than his skill yeah. set would indicate. But I think there's also the fact that he's a, a zero true outcomes-ish guy. He has a little more power than a pure zero true outcomes but he has that Astadio David Fletcher thing going on where there's going to be a lot of action when he's batting yeah it's 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 funny that the chubby guys put the ball in play yeah I actually think there's a lot of uh, a Fletcher to him aside from like there's three Fletchers to him if you <laughs> if you're just adding he runs a lot higher walk rates than Astadio does and he he has kind of the uh the selectiveness plus contact deal I don't know what Zips thinks of him going forward but I'm pretty excited for him yeah, I, I haven't run a projection yet. He's not someone I projected coming into the season, I don't think. He has some three-year Zips projections on his page. Oh, then I guess I must have done it. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I did it all. two-war player by 2022. Oh, okay. Before yeah. this year. That's a good sign. Okay, well, then I can then I can confidently say that Zips saw him coming. <laughs> yeah, you've got him with a 2.2 war in 370 plate appearances in 2022. That's Wow, Zips really likes him. I yeah. it's it's kind of weird that you're telling me things about Zips and I'm surprised. But he has a uh, the kind of profile that I I can see liking. He's running really high walk rates with low strikeout rates, but also running like decent results on contact. And he actually throws out base runners too, and he's not terrible yeah, behind he's, the Yeah, he's plate. a real catcher, not a, you know, you will probably not see him as a premier defensive catcher, but he looks like he knows what he's doing back there. Now, I, I doubt he's going to join kind of that Kyle Farmer, Austin Barnes, catcher slash middle infielder thing. <laughs> hey, Astadio has played some center field. <laughs> I I actually did not know that offhand. I, I would like to see that. It, it, it would be fun to see uh, him play shortstop or something. Yeah, I don't think he'll join that group either. But, <laughs> you know, he's well ahead of 
any pace that you could have predicted for him going into this year. He's starting as a DH in a playoff game, and he's probably an at least average defensive catcher. That's a really, that's a really advanced level for a guy who is. I mean, what's the highest level he played at before this year? High, High A ball. I, I I like how teams are being more aggressive with, with some of these players because I think there's a real need to get some actual playing time for these guys in yeah. a year without minor leagues. Do you think that will continue in 2021? Or do you think it's a... I think a lot of it's an artifact of no minor leagues this year. Yeah, because you don't... I mean, there's there's really no way to play them in meaningful games Unless you can somehow figure out how to farm them to like the American Association or something. Right. And that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. I think what happens is when we see the final deal between MLB and, and, and uh, the, the minor leagues. Because, you know, I mean, the major leagues are the driver's seat. And so I think there's a lot we don't know about what a minor league season would look like. Also, right. because it doesn't look like a vaccine will be widely distributed until well into 2021. So there's a chance we don't have a minor league season again. I mean, there's enough... Baseball has enough incentive to push major league games, but there's not a huge financial incentive to to play fabulous yeah. minor league games. The only one would be if they're worried about losing development time, but also worried about starting service clocks. Yeah, that that is a concern. But given that the CBA is happening next year to where service time clocks are of dubious utility because we just don't know what the deal is going to be with service time going forward. I could see some wisdom for the league in canning the minor league season next year. And we just see more of these major league debut type deals where guys go from very low levels directly to the majors. I have to admit, I'm slightly worried that 2021 will have some train wreck aspects. So the last series we should cover because it's the last series is the well, white. We could make up series. a series. That's we could have true. a series in our heads. We could say, Hey, Hey, you know, we they had some secret games between the Mariners and the Orioles. How did that series I go? I was going to say, yeah, Mariners-Angels for the Sadness Cup, but Mariners-Orioles would work, too. No, the Angels don't deserve it. <laughs> you have Mike Trout on your roster. You have to make the real playoffs, not the imaginary playoffs. That's a fair point. So in the, the real playoffs, which Mike Trout did not qualify for, the A's and White Sox played the only three-game series in the AL. They also played the series with, you know, probably the most excitement and i was there to cover all of them which was pretty exciting yeah doubled up on exciting there but you run out of words when you're at a game in person in these playoffs i don't know how i could be at a game when they don't have like the beer it was really weird i craved salty food and beer just reflexively because i was at a baseball game and there were a lot of sounds of baseball there even was a a full pa system in effect and so it, it felt very much like a baseball game, except without all the parts that I get to consume during it. The A's kindly provided all the press with boxed lunches. Oh, what'd you get? I had, let's see, a turkey sandwich two days and a chicken sandwich one day with a bag they of made, chips. They made you eat the same sandwich for two days? Uh, no, they changed the trappings. It was like a caribbean turkey sandwich one day and some other kind oh of i thought day. you meant that they gave you the same sandwich like you had to eat it over <laughs> the course of two days yeah because i mean it is it is not a team that spends a lot of money it's like oh that's that's tomorrow's lunch too buddy yeah it's too bad i wasn't at i don't know like the dodgers series or something i i could see them having a nicer spread but they they had a pretty decent setup they put us up in some wi-fi enabled internet connected plush seats down the first baseline with enough space to spread apart from writers. Oh, you got plush seats. Like, oh, yeah. With soft backing and everything. Oh, yeah. Like It was like 
not suede, but maybe faux suede. I think there are probably 30 nice seats in the Coliseum, and they were all used for writers. Well, that, that that's fancy. They should have fully next year you'll get to do. Have you Have you been in a full press box yet? I have not. I got to announce an inning on radio of a Cardinals game when I was seven. Because oh, they did that's that awesome. For a lot of kids. How did um, it go? I I don't remember, and I don't have a recording of it anymore, but I'm assuming. How do you not have a recording poorly. of that? I know, right? I mean, I was too young. I blame my dad and my uncle who were there with me. But I, I mean, have I have recordings of, of me as a little kid because when I was a little kid, I thought I had my own radio show. Or, I mean, I know I didn't have a radio show, but <laughs> I would carry around my radio, like this Sanyo recording radio, and I would I would talk and I would run commercials for like, you know, like Puppy Chow and, and Pan Am Airlines. And I didn't know at that time that I needed to, you know, actually charge companies for those plugs. Yeah. So I I, I didn't have much in the way of revenue. You were getting paid in exposure. Yeah, I I didn't know it at four and a half that that you shouldn't pay you shouldn't work for exposure. So this game actually felt like young Dan putting on his own show of major league games. There were a hundred people in the stadium, but there was a pretty rowdy White Sox contingent, and the A's wives and families. I, I thought it was A's staffers, but it turns out it was wives and families were out in center field for the last game, and so you would hear the like little league esque like "Attaboy, Mike." like kind of calls as the game was going on in an otherwise empty stadium with kind of C minus level piped in noise. It was a very surreal setting. It was probably more professional than uh, than Dan Child Radio because I also sang a lot of songs. There's one where, where I'm just singing for like five minutes, singing peanut butter in your face. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so during one actual pitch, the PA announcer announced the scoring of the previous play like out loud during someone's windup. And I was kind of blown away that that would happen in an empty stadium. But the players didn't seem to complain. The home plate umpire didn't call timeout or anything. And it was just, you know, halfway through the, the delivery, hit. That was a hit. Yeah, there's actually, uh, you will actually get kind of announcements like in the press box during normal times. Yeah, I'm guessing that it was supposed to be that. But just because there was no one there, it ended up working out that way. One of the things about press boxes is, I mean, you have a lot of people who are doing really serious work, and then you have me. Like, last opening day, everyone's working hard, and I was trying to find the bourbon slushies at, at Great American Ballpark. Did I did them? not find the bourbon oh. slushie that day, and I was very upset, so I drank beer with some random fans that I just sat with. Yeah, this press box, as it were, press section, varied in intensity from me, probably middle of the road, watching the game and very excited to be in person at a baseball game in 2020, but also writing a game recap and following along, you know, on various sources to get batted ball data and pitch level data. It included actual beat writers who were, you know, cued in on everything and tuning into the pregame press conferences. And it included, I'm pretty sure a guy working on a screenplay and definitely a guy there, but just working on his fantasy football team and watching other games. It was pretty varied. I want to hear about the screenplay. Uh, did you get to, did he... I didn't. It, he could have been reading a screenplay, too. I'm not actually sure. Okay. I'm wondering if it's a Michael Scarn threat level midnight type thing. I would like to know as well. Another thing I'd like to know, and this is part of my terrible transition work, is what you thought of <laughs> the pitching decisions yesterday. Because I was at the game, and so I think that sometimes makes it harder for you to separate kind of logic from how it feels there. But I think the decision to put Carlos Verdone into that game was one of the worst pitching decisions I've maybe ever seen. Yeah, I, the thing, I like Rodon, but he hasn't actually been good. 
or healthy. Even if you like him, you can't think that this year could provide an accurate, like, assessment of his talent. He barely pitched. He pitched, I think, seven innings this year. Yeah, seven and two-thirds innings. He walked three and a half per nine and, like, had a FIP about five, an XFIP above six. It was an ERA of eight. Like, it just wasn't a reasonable representation of his talents this year. Having him on the postseason roster was kind of strange instead of Joe Gonzalez, say. Or Ross Detweiler, one of these just otherwise forgettable lefties. But I just thought the situation they used him in just beggared belief for me. So they, to set the stage here, they brought him in with two outs and the bases empty in the bottom of the fourth inning to face a lefty. But the three batters after Tommy Lastella, which is who he was brought in to face, were all right-handed. And there's a three-batter minimum. And they weren't going to be using him next inning, obviously. He wouldn't come in to start a fresh inning facing three righties. That's... They just weren't going to get him past there. So do you really want a loogie type, which is the way they were trying to use him, to face one guy where if it goes right, you didn't get a high leverage out. You got a two out, nobody on out. But if it goes wrong, then you have a rusty lefty facing righties with runners on in a one run game. It, it was just kind of a weird situation. I wonder what what factor that Crochet uh, not his velocity being down and being a little worried about him. I wonder how that affected their game plan, but yeah, it was kind I think of that hurt it a lot. But I think that given his history with the team, they felt that they wanted to roster him just because this might be his, the end of him in Chicago. Right. But I, I don't think it, it was a great decision. Yeah. Like when I was watching the game live, I didn't understand why Cody Hoyer didn't just, you know, pitch to another guy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things they could have done. I mean, the whole ge- the game as a whole felt kind of, you know, felt like one of those interminable Red Sox-Yankees games where they use, like, everybody on the staff, and it takes 11 hours, and, you yeah. know. Part of that seemed like it was by design, in that neither team has a real third starter. The A's have Frankie Montas. He's fine. He pitched on Sunday, so that was not going to work. Yeah, I thought I thought he could have gone longer, personally. Yeah, I think they they were worried about essentially throwing him on short rest because he pitched 113 pitches, I believe, on Sunday. So he was going to pitch on three days rest. He threw 34 pitches, and they want to use him as the third starter next week. So I'm guessing that that had something to do with it, but he maybe could have gone a little longer. But they weren't really short up for relief options, right? They used eight pitchers, but they used Montes and Fires, and then they used their six best relievers. Yeah, they used Pettit and Wendelkin and uh, Trevino. Trevino, they got Deepman in, they got Soria in. I think they did a pretty good job of working with their shortcomings, which was Fires didn't go deep at all. And I think they were prepared for him to not go deep at all. I mean, Yusmero Petit Petit came in in the second inning and it didn't look like that was unplanned. The crochet injury clearly hurt the White Sox. I mean, he threw, I think, nine pitches. Yeah, and his velocity was down a little from where it normally was. So you can see why they'd be worried about that. Now, my question for you is, it worked out fine. But were you as worried as me when Liam Hendricks entered the game? Yes, I was very worried. And nothing he did made me less worried, even though he struck out three (laughs) batters. He threw harder than he has ever thrown this year. And that is interesting because it was the day after he threw 50 pitches. I don't exactly know how that works. Just pure adrenaline, I suppose. He was really wild. Yeah, but luckily the White Sox overcame his wildness by swinging at things. Yeah, I will say if you have a guy who's just gutting it out there and just completely selling out for Velo and is totally wild, you probably want to face the White Sox. Yeah. Well, not Yasmani Grandal, but he didn't face Grandal. You probably want to face 
basically who he did. Moncada, Robert, and Nomar Mazzara. Yeah, I mean, the, the White Sox, they do have a lot of C-ball, hit-ball guys, and I guess in Mazzara's case, it's C-ball, don't hit-ball. <laughs> I mean, Moncada is... It's unfair of me to group him in with yeah, that. When he's, he had strikeout issues, it was that he was taking too much, and he yeah, fixed that. He, that, was, that was always weird. The thing about Mankata is he actually always had really good numbers and win respect at actually recognizing the pitches. Right. It was actually kind of, I don't want to call it passivity, because it wasn't quite the same as like that whole Ben Grieve, Jeremy Hermita yeah. thing, because he did swing. I'd argue he had the, a bad game plan. Yeah. That he just like, he wasn't approaching two strike counts correctly. And I think he's kind of fixed that. Yeah. He was using I mean, it's, his it's early count day. approach with two strikes. And that doesn't actually work very well. No. And I'll, I'll always take a guy who has a bad game plan, but has the ability to recognize pitches better than the opposite. Yeah. A guy who has a good plan, but doesn't recognize pitches. I don't want to bet on that guy. Yeah. That's kind of more the Pete Alonzo mold. And it can work, but you got a little work to do to make it work. Robert, you know, had the highs and lows in this game. He, swung at three straight Liam Hendricks wild fastballs and struck out in the ninth inning. But he also hit a home run, you know, back to San Francisco from Oakland in the second inning. So I guess that's kind of what you're you're signing up for with Luis Robert. And he also played great center field defense, which is another callback to Zips. Zips was very high on Robert's defense, and it looks like it was right based on this year. Yeah, it, it was interesting in the defensive projection. I have a method that turns game day ball tracking results into kind of a a zone rating-esque number. So and like the X and Y coordinate type deal. Yeah, that kind of thing. And I track like the, the probability of a ball under every trajectory getting caught. So it's it's a probabilistic model. Right. So there's no defensive positioning, but you assume that it kind of works out. Yeah, I, that data just doesn't exist, uh, at right, least that I not. have access to. Or I've never I, seen it, at least, yeah. And I don't know anyone who, who has access or who will give me that access if it does exist. But it was interesting because it, like Robert Fine, like when he first broke into the minors but in 2019 it had him as the second most valuable defensive outfielder in the minors it was like plus 21 behind only someone in the reds organization whose name i forget right now and i'll probably remember if i just filibuster this this sentence <laughs> long enough but i digress there was a chance that Ra that Zips had him, I think, plus six or something in center field. And there was a chance that Zips was doing a, a huge undersell there simply because of his 2019 improvement. Right. And I think there's an argument that 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 is the case because yeah, he's looked at this year. Yeah, he was he was he was very, very solid. He also looks the part. And I think that that actually lends some credence to defensive metrics that I that are outliers is if a guy looks like he has an incredibly fast first step and takes really efficient routes. Like, the eye test has a place in defensive evaluations over short time periods, I think, at least. Yeah, I mean, players are much, I mean, people are much better at, you know, looking and saying, this mechanic isn't working, or this this thing isn't working. Uh, you're right. tipping your pitch, or there's, there's certainly a place for that. And I think that our eyes tend to believe things that we believe to be true more easily than things we don't. Yeah. Uh, like, the if Dan of... Vogelbach became, like, a slick defensive player. Right. This is theoretical. I, I'm definitely not saying that's likely. Max Muncy style, soft hands around second base. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd be. I think we'd be naturally suspicious just because we we look at him and our our yeah. the whole trope of him isn't quite fitting with that. And I also think the things that we tend to overrate in outfield defense are basically dives, right? Yeah. And I don't think Robert's defense is 
particularly dive heavy. What's so impressive about him is just how fast he looks when he's underway. And that's real. Like, he's just really fast. Yeah, it feels kind of like faux Zen to say excellence in the outfield is when you don't make the catch, when you right. don't need to dive. Yeah, the more routine catches you make, the better you are. But I think that, like, you can just watch him and think, yeah, this guy has, like, really clean actions. He he runs the right way right away, and he's really fast. So I, it's hardly surprising to me that Zips loves, loved his defense coming in this year that he posted a bunch of really good defensive metrics of basically on any defensive system you want to look at. And they're using the White Sox are using him as their everyday center fielder with no hesitation at all, which I think makes perfect sense. He looks it. Now, my question to you, since we were talking about Robert and I can trap you, if you had a rookie of the year vote this year, would you pick Robert? Or if not, Robert, would it be Lewis, Kyle Lewis, or would it be a third option that I haven't said? Yeah, so I think I would vote for Kyle Lewis. I think that if it was closer, I'd be willing to vote for Robert because I do value essentially pedigree. Like if you think that a guy is going to be a better overall player and he has the exact same line, so like if Harrison Bader and Ronald Acuna Jr., who were rookies the same year, I believe, had the same B-war, and they did, I would vote for Acuna every time. So I think I would probably vote for Lewis. I thought his game was enough more impressive than Robert. I thought that Robert didn't convince me that he's ready to hit at the major league level yet, basically. Now, how do you feel about Justice Sheffield's rookie season? Where would he finish in your ballot? <sighs> yeah. Like, who would be third if, assuming Robert's second... Would it be would it be Sheffield or Sean Murphy or Willie Castro? So I am going to go a little bit off the board, and I think I would put Randy Arozarena third. Is it because he's a lot of fun to say his name, Arozarena? It's partially that. It's partially because I have long been very high on him. He was a Cardinals prospect who I always thought was extremely undervalued, and it's also because he did so much so quickly. So kind of like a peak rookie, kind of like yeah. the, the Hall of Fame peak versus career right. on a micro level. In this year where everything was so short, I'm not sure that, well, no one's going to stabilize, right? Like no one has a statistically significant lead on anyone else. It's just not possible. There weren't enough games. Separating Willie Castro, who was the fourth best AL hitter, and Kyle Lewis, the best AL hitter, was 0.4 war. I think Arozarena kind of impressed me the most with his hitting and his like, oh, I could actually kind of see this being a a major league approach long-term. It wasn't like a crazy BABIP season. It wasn't, you know, oh, he just had 8 trillion home runs. He did have seven home runs and 76 plate appearances. So he was pretty hot with the bat, but he walked 8% of the time. He didn't strike out too, too much. He had a reasonable BABIP. He played a good outfield. I, I think that I would be tempted to cast my third place vote for him had I an actual vote just because of his dynamism in a small sample. Like you said, a peak rookie. Who would you put there? I think that for a long time, it was Robert was close enough that I would have taken him, but I think I would take Lewis now. I don't have any vote this year, so it, this is all theoretical. I'm not doing spoilers, but I think I might do, I might play Sean Murphy third. Yeah, that's also very reasonable. Because, you know, I don't know, I maybe it's not the right way to think of it, but, you know, catching on the major league level is kind of tricky. And he's a rookie and doesn't have a lot of experience. 
he only played in a handful of games for the A's last year. Uh, so to do so well with with the A's diverse pitching staff uh, and a wide variety of pitchers coming in and out, I don't know. I, I think that there's a case for Murphy to, to make the ballot. Yeah, I think that's very fair. He also, like, he didn't play very much for the A's last year, and he also didn't play catcher in every one of those games because they were worried about integrating a rookie catcher during a postseason push. But it seems to have worked just fine this year because the A's, I think, you know, were the best team in the AL West and probably yeah. are the better team than the Astros at this point. I am curious about why they're generally using Murphy ninth in their lineup. I don't know. I think he's a better hitter than other A's. The, the thing is that really the, the, the best, the difference between kind of an optimized lineup and just a random lineup is, is very, very small. Yeah, particularly for a team with flat batting lines like the A's. Like, they yeah, don't have it, any tremendously great hitters or any terrible hitters. You put Mike Trout ninth, you're giving up a lot of runs. Yeah, I think I think you could really put anyone in, in any part of, of the order and, yeah, and be fine. Yeah, the flatter your lineup, the more that's true as well. And the A's are, like, among the flattest, I think, in terms of how good their best three hitters are against how good their worst three hitters are. I, I, I do think that it, when we talk batting over, that player comfort is actually a thing. Yeah. Simply because the actual real-life benefit is so small. Yeah, short of, uh, again, like something really weird, I think I think that generally makes a lot of sense. Like, you wouldn't want to put a really low OBP guy first. That actually has some real impact. Like, if you were putting your pitcher first, that would that would have wins of impact over a year, I think. Yeah, it, when I when I say a normal lineup and a good lineup, I mean you know a normal lineup, not right. a if crazy you're lineup. Over who bats second versus who bats fifth, it's just not probably going to matter enough. Which which does, as a baseball fan, make you feel kind of sad because it's fun to talk about like perfect lineups and is this guy a two guy or a three guy? Yeah, and that's probably one of the more depressing things about being an analyst is I kind of know in my heart that it's kind of meaningless. I think that's not true though, like. Like, in lineups, that's fair. But baseball is a game of accumulating a lot of small edges. True. I guess I guess that's fair. It makes me feel a little better. If every baseball decision was meaningful, I think there would be kind of decision overload. This is the, you know, this guy saves us 10 wins a year in the outfield kind of thing. Like, every decision has to be small because there are so many. That's a, that's, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, like, I actually think that, like, bullpen management, it's hard for it to cost you a game. But it is easy to tilt your odds over a series by, you know, 5% of a win, and you do that enough times and it matters. So anyway, are we going to make our AL picks or are we going yeah. to wait? Let's do it. Let's start with the AL West battle, the true winners of the AL West. The season wasn't long enough to pick a winner, so we're going to pick one in a five-game series, even shorter. Still has to be A's. I, I can't not pick the A's. I think they're a better team than the Astros without Verlander. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think that the Astros have the the better top-end talents. I think if we were picking two players on each team, I would probably take two Astros before I took an A. Are we counting people who are in there right now? Uh, yes. Okay, so we're not counting Mac Chapman under this. Correct. Yeah, okay, so I because take... I was going to berate you with my fist in the air and say, how dare you, Ben yeah. Clemens? Well, but then would you take Matt Chapman over Verlander and Bregman? I, I think I would take Chapman over Verlander. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, Clemens. I think I'd take Bregman first. Yeah, I'd take Bregman first, but I would take I would take Chapman oh, over anyone else. I think Chapman Verlander is close, but they're both out. And then I think the next tier is again still kind of close, but you know, I I think I'd probably take Grinky and Springer and Correa, that kind of tier. That's fair. 
the very top of the A's, but the A's are better top to bottom. They don't have the same kind of holes that the Astros do, and they have, a, I think, a much better rotation in bullpen. Oh, absolutely. I think the Astros without Verlander, you have McCullers, you have Urquidy, and like, ooh. Yeah. I think also the lack of mainly Jordan Alvarez this year has really shortened up the Astros lineup, where, you know, you have Kyle Tucker and Josh Reddick in there. The guys who you have to come in as righties against lefties are, I mean, like, well, Lemus Diaz, I guess. Yeah, everything's just not the same without Jordan Alvarez. It's, he was so much fun. I think it really shortens the lineup up. He was just, he hit against, like, pitchers on both sides of the plate just for a ton of thump, for a ton of average. He was, like, he really lengthened their lineup quite a bit. And without that, I think it, it makes it shorter enough that it's just a lot easier to pitch to. I think kind of the same White Sox syndrome of missing Eloy and missing, and Edwin Carnacion being basically on a milk carton really made it a lot easier to pitch to them. Like, I know that that's a an analyst cliche, but a lineup with five above average hitters and four below average hitters scores a lot less runs than nine above average hitters because sequencing, you're a lot more likely to have guys on base for those below average hitters that way. Now, I, I answered the easy playoff series first relatively, so I'm going to make you answer the, the harder one first. Yankees versus Rays. Yeah, I think I have to go with the Yankees as much as I don't want to and as much as I want the Rays to win. Yeah, I, I prefer the Rays to win, too, but I think the Yankees are just so dangerous from their top-end talent. Yeah. I I expect the projections, as, as we discussed, to be fairly close, but I think I'm going to take the Yankees, and I hate that. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm going to take the Yankees, and I'm upset with myself for taking the Yankees. I just think that they have just so much depth of good players like that's a crappy way to say it but they just have so many players who are above average and a lot of them are very above average and the rays can counter with a lot of depth but they don't have the same like their first five hitters aren't as good as the yankees first five hitters and the yankees you know six through nine hitters are probably as good as the rays or six through 15 let's say like the the back end of the starters and the bench are pretty comparable and the yankees are just better at the front both of them have absolutely lights out bullpens Maybe you can give the the Rays a small starting pitching edge, but it's just not enough to offset the hitting edge that I think the Yankees have. Well, I agree with you. Yeah, it's not great radio, but no. Well, I mean, we can fight about something. Maybe I can. Maybe I can make fun of a cardinal or something. We could do a. You just can't do that. Yadi Molina, worst Molina ever. <laughs> I would take Jose and Benji over him any day. So how about that? Benji Molina, excellent radio announcer. I, I will say that. I, I highly recommend the Spanish language Cardinals broadcast experience. He's really good. Yadier Molina, I am also willing to admit, probably overrated by announcers. Probably a Hall of Famer, probably overrated. So that's probably not going to get the spicy takes going. How about this? You have to set your feet to throw, and Gio Rochella just does not do that. He sometimes isn't even standing. You can't do that. I always had this, someone made a joke some years ago when Benji Molina was running on the bases about Pop-Tarts. And now I just pick up this picture of the Molina brothers hanging out and having like pop tarts every morning. <laughs> well, I think that is a great note to leave it on. We will be back next time for a pop tart tasting session, hopefully with guests of various Molinas. Wait, wait, wait I had to buy pop tarts. I don't have any pop tarts. We can see if we can get them to sh to ship to us. I, I know that you're big into doing promotional things for brands who don't give you anything, but we'll see if we can get paid in pop tarts rather than exposure next time. Hey, I I am in favor of Bounty because they don't. I have problems with Brawny, and I've had a kind of a fighting with them online because I've been upset that they that they got rid of that the cool '70s lumberjack 
for that kind of metrosexual sensitive lumberjack. So for Fancrafts Audio, I'm Ben Clemens. This is Dan Zimborski, and by bounty, I guess. Hello again from sunny eastern Pennsylvania. This is Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. Today joined by Rachel McDaniel. It's a it's a different version of the McDongenhagen pod. How's it going, Rachel? <laughs> it's going great. <laughs> Hopefully I can live up to the storied legacy of the McDongenhagen podcast. All eight episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Kylie and I were just like, you know how our phone calls are, are really interesting and we should just record them. Uh, and then we got on and would record them and we realized some of this stuff we really can't, <laughs> we can't put out there. And also it was just more work for, I think for Kylie than cause he was doing all the editing than we had time to do. And that was that, but yeah, here we are. It's, um, it's October 2nd. We are recording this at a time between the, the Marlins having clinched against the Cubs and the Cardinals and Padres game three beginning, but we are going to talk generally about the National League playoff outcomes and specifically Rachel I wanted to speak with you about you've had a hand covering both the the Cardinals Padres and the Dodgers Brewer series and specifically I wanted to to bring up the thing that you wrote about Clayton Kershaw at the onset of that series called eight pictures of Clayton Kershaw I'm curious what brought that about I actually, so here's a peek behind the scenes, you know, a little lifting of the curtain at fangraphs.com. I actually wrote that, like, last week, like, right after the Dodgers, I, I have no idea what time is going on. Maybe it was last week, maybe it was two weeks ago. But after the Dodgers clinched the NL West for the eighth time in a row, I was thinking about the fact that the guys who have been there the entire time have been Jansen and Kershaw for that run. And the way that I was just interested in the way that like that celebration will have evolved with those two guys at the center. And I think like with the Kershaw, ooh, ooky spooky postseason narrative that that he would have been an interesting person to focus on. And particularly since last postseason, after the Dodgers early exit, we could really see like how much the whole postseason Kershaw like ooh, can he perform has like really affected him like clearly he really really cares about it and so I was just I was just thinking of like what is he doing in these moments of celebration like he's obviously one of the greatest pitchers of this era like nothing can touch that legacy no matter how badly he might do in the postseason sometimes but and he's obviously been the center of why the Dodgers have won eight straight NL West titles. So I just, it was just interesting looking back at some of the ways that the celebration unfolds, like where he is positioned in the celebration, like what the context is within the month of September, within the division races, and just seeing what he was up to and how he was reacting. Because I imagine that even though it is like the same celebration, it's clinching the NL West, and it is the same thing happening every year. It is it is completely different. And I could see kind of an evolution. And then especially this year with it being 
2020 no fans there like every it's just been such a weird stressful time for everybody and yet there's still like the celebration is kind of obligatory it it becomes obligatory after a certain point so yeah i was just interested in looking at that kind of stuff because i'm always interested in how people celebrate around sports since i think celebration is such a fundamental aspect of why we are drawn to sporting events and like competition particularly you mentioned several things that are branches of a tree that I, I think are really worth climbing. And the first thing is the playoff narrative around Kershaw. And we're not, look, this is fan graphs and we're not going to sit here and take that because I went through, like, I'm sure everybody has at some point when they're engaging with this. And for the most part, he's just been really good. Like, it's yeah. just not <laughs> true. And it, there's just, the spotlight is so bright and the teams you're playing against are so good that the likelihood of A, you failing, and B, it being very public and, and at the forefront, more so than a July start where you're mowing down 14 guys, is just, it's likely. So that's that's one thing. And there's probably something to be said about our click-hungry media culture that is driven by, you know, we're just, we have incentive to inflame narratives like this especially you know the at the ESPN level at the the first take level it's the type of thing to grab hold on and talk about and so that's that's interesting too but you mentioned what has come from this is and I agree with you that Clayton Kershaw clearly cares about this in a way that as you know a person who seems good based on us watching him basically since he was 20 years old in the public eye evolve as an adult it seems like a good person and so yeah I don't like to watch Clayton Kershaw writhe with like anxiety about how he's performing in the playoffs and so this is a thing that to my sense is happening more across sports and I th we saw it this week with Kyrie Irving as well where the feedback loop of this type of rhetoric is harming maybe it's too much to say that it's harming but i do wonder what it's doing to the psyche of the modern athlete who is on social media who is seeking to control their image via social media and who is getting a lot of like the inputs from other media outlets and from fans on the psyche of the modern day athlete is just heavily, like it's just saturated more than it was even 15, 20 years ago, certainly. And yeah, I think that that has absolutely impacted all of these players, like to some extent, and certainly Clayton Kershaw. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about modern media. You're someone who is probably close to what, 10 years younger than me? Yeah. And so the way that this stuff has washed over you as you have come of age as a person is different than me. My first smartphone came at age 21 or two. <laughs> That's how old I am now. Right? That is, so, that is crazy to think about. What do you think about this? How do you think about the social media and sort of the feedback loop from our culture has maybe impacted athletes? I don't think you're out of line at all to say that it has been harmful because... I think about like just myself as a normal like not really public person like I've, I've only had a Twitter account for a few years like my Twitter account is still small by design because even with the smallest of audiences even if it's just like your 60 to 200 Facebook friends which has been a reality that I've been contending with since I was nine like I was about nine when the the social pressure to be on social media really kicked off wow. and 
Yeah, and and my mom was always like, you will not have a Facebook account. And I was like, but everyone at school is telling me I'm lame for not being on Facebook. And then, so there's that pressure arose super early. And with that pressure came like this constant sense of I am being watched and everything I am saying is being evaluated and can be evaluated in perpetuity and shared among people that I do not know. And that's like, I'm a kind of fairly neurotic person, but I think even for somebody who doesn't have like neuroses about being overanalyzed and being perceived in a negative way, that it is really, really, really damaging to have this sense of everything that you're saying and everything you're doing being under a constant spotlight. And like, even in you know, the way, way, way distant past. Like, if you read, like, old-timey baseball reporting, you see these narratives of players, like, choking or being super bad in certain situations and letting the team down. Like, those did arise. And we know that even back in those times when it was just the, the guy in the newspaper who was writing this, that still came back around and affected players and the feedback that they got from fans like if they were going up to the plate or standing on the mound or just around the clubhouse. So like if we know that even just like some random columnist writing negative columns over and over again, like repeating the same narratives about players had effects on them back then. Now, not a, you get it in like 12 different mediums. You get it repeated million, literally millions of times, right. like attached to their name or even directly at them on social media. And I know a lot of these guys have like social media managers and they're like probably trying not to look at their social media, but then they, if they, if they didn't go on social media at all, like if they were just completely off the grid, they'd get blowback for that too. I'm sure because it's like, well, why aren't you accessible to fans? Like we just love you and we want to connect with you. Right. Or you're perceived as having thin skin or something else like this. Yeah. And it was, it was really kind of, it's weird because it's like, with social media being live, like, like updating in real time, it's like that even while Kershaw was so dominant last night, and even while he was like clearly not being like heavy scare quotes postseason Kershaw, he, like it, it's as though postseason Kershaw, that idea that he bombs in the playoffs and he lets the teams down was still unfolding in real time as in real life he was actually being so completely dominant because like it was still being referenced on social media like i'm if you do a like a name search of clayton kershaw and like you know don't filter out like low follower accounts it's still a lot of people tagging and being like oh you choker and on the on the live tv broadcast they're still talking about ooh postseason kershaw like what's gonna happen he's done so bad in the past and that's that's an element that i think of like the modern media culture that I think that I think would be really really hard to contend with as someone who's not an athlete it's hard to contend with so being on a platform and a stage that big and having your actions so scrutinized and being of such heavy emotional investment to so many people like it's got to be it's got to be incredibly difficult and I think as people who work in kind of that digital media sphere where you know we we have to look for things to talk about there's a lot of responsibility that that comes with that. And 
I think I think it's something that we all have to be careful about. It's like what narratives we are choosing to spin because as much as as much as we like to distance ourselves from like creating narratives, like we try in baseball media particularly to like look for for data, look for objective facts, like not try to cling to emotionally driven narratives of how players are doing and why things are happening. There still has to be an element of narrative creation because that's that's fun it's fundamental to sports to have like a narrative driving a season a game that's what gives the sport structure and so there's just there's just a level of care that has to be involved i think to not create a toxic environment for athletes with the narratives that we're looking for yeah i agree it's it's a difficult needle to thread to do a thing that is of interest to a broad enough base that we can function as a website and also with enough analytical rigor that it has substance that we can feel good about. And it's hard to do that level of content at a rate, like at a pace that satisfies and keeps readers coming back, especially when there's just a fire hose of stuff on the internet for everybody all the time, that if you stop uh, for a little bit and the, and the fan graphs hose were to be crimped momentarily, it's probably detrimental to the uh, to the success of the site. So yeah, it's a, it's difficult. It's a thing that I think everyone is constantly wrestling with as I get older and start to look at the parts of our culture that I'm trying to foster outside of baseball. It is just curiosity and the type of like help fostering youth culture in such a way that there's a, I don't know, like that makes them not want to turn on Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith, basically. Like how are we going to grow young people who are interested in, in some, something more substantive than it is loud. Let's talk a little bit more about the NL playoffs in general. You know, watching these three-game series, I feel like it's been harder. It's almost impossible, even if you're the Brewers and the Blue Jays, to feel beaten more than you are sort of robbed after the year everyone has had, even after just 60 games. Dropping two games out of three, it's just hard to feel as though you've been soundly beaten rather than just something has been taken away from you by the chaos of small samples, especially for the eight seed brewers who lost Corbin Burns, who had no Dave, Devin Williams for the, for the postseason series, who had Ryan Braun for just one game. And who knows if his health was compromised for the first one. How have you felt about the opening, the opening round? It's been such a weird mixture. You mentioned you mentioned the Blue Jays. Like I, I watched the Blue Jays. I was excited. It was excited to see like all the young guys in the postseason. And then it was like they were gone instantly. Like those those games seemed to just slip out of their fingers so fast. You would see it in kind of their faces as they watched the final half inning unfold. It's like it's over already. It it it's hard to kind of. It, I think what you're saying is right. Like the, it's hard to feel that kind of resonance of like oh man we got we got beaten like we got fully defeated in this really tiny two games where so much so so much so much is at at the the hands of randomness which is true of all postseason but especially with expanded playoffs like the 60 game season and a three game opening series and i think we were like i wrote about this in my recap of the first cardinals padres game but it's evident in that series too where the padres are you know just clearly a better team but with lamette gone with clevenger gone like who knows if they're gonna be back for the nlds should the padres make it but now we're looking at game three starting 
when we're recording this quite soon with Craig Stammen starting and the Padres having used like 18 yeah. different pitchers over the past two games. And that's something that I just feel like would not, we wouldn't really probably have seen that over the, like it had the season been 162 games or had this series not been so condensed into best of three with no breaks. Like it's a very weird vibe. And, and having the eight postseason games on the same day was also kind of a very weird vibe. Like, at the end of the day, by the end of the day, I was, like, vibrating. Like, I didn't have to write a recap at the end of the day, but I ended up staying up until four anyway because I'd just been, like, so overstimulated. Yeah, I had that problem, too, when sports came back in general, where I was just like, I'm done with anything creative just give me sports and frontline documentaries. It's all I'm going to consume now for the next two months. But yes, the I would anticipate that today, and we will either be right or wrong about this, but it's almost a certainty that Luis Patino will be the one who pitches the most innings today, assuming that he doesn't go nuclear for the Padres, and that Tim Hill and Dan Altavilla will play a substantial role because they did not throw during game two. And it's not as if the Cardinals have had the healthiest and and best of luck year either. They've had 38% of their games have been part of doubleheaders. They've had to reach deep into the minors for pitching because of injuries to Dakota Hudson and Miles Michaelis and Carlos Martinez and still are like standing here having, you know, the guy who started the year as their closer going in game one of this playoff series. And they've got Jack Flaherty, who hasn't been quite himself going today. So we'll wait to see how that one plays out. But I think the fascinating thing is, you know, I picked the Reds as the sleeper to go deep in the playoffs in the NL because of the way their pitching had set up with Bauer, Castillo, Gray, and Molly, the way their bullpen has been of late. And then all of that was rendered moot by the fact that their offense didn't score runs at all for 20-some-odd innings. That was a very frustrating... Like, I could feel... Cincinnati just seething in their chili, watching the offense sputter, missing opportunities late in, in those games as they fell to Atlanta. Max Fried, very good in game one for the Braves. The Braves bullpen, excellent the entire time. Ian Anderson seems like he and Freed are going to be a one-two punch going forward here that is just about as good as any other in the in the NL. And I'm including the Dodgers in that because I'm not sure how Walker Bueller's blister is going to impact with his ability to, to be successful going forward. I think that's an interesting thing to watch. Although I am skeptical about the Braves' rotation depth because after Anderson, it's Kyle Wright who has been mixed at best. Bryce Wilson, same thing. Like They have had a hard time finding rotation pieces in Atlanta. I'm curious how you think this Marlins <laughs> Braves second round series might shake out. I mean, I I had picked the Reds to to win the series against the Braves for similar reasons as you, and I had picked the Cubs to win out over the Marlins. So my NL postseason bracket is completely shot going into this series. Yeah, but I I really don't know. I mean, we saw we saw the kind of pitching that the Marlins were able to get out of like Alcantara and Sanchez against the Cubs. Obviously, the Cubs' offense has had deep deep struggles this year, so. Perhaps that's more a reflection on the Cubs, but the, the Marlins pitching was great. And there are those concerns with the rotational depth of the Braves beyond, yeah, beyond beyond their top two, one-two punch. So looking, looking at that series, what I'm really going to be interested in watching is that it's a longer series, but again, 
with no off days. And should there be like a really bad short start from one of the uh, one of the game one and game two starters on either of those teams, I'll be really interested to see how the bullpen management and how how they managed to bounce back from that heading into a, a series that like has the potential to be longer than these really brief blip wildcard series. Don Mattingly pressed the right buttons in the wildcard series, which was really interesting to me. Starling Marte's hand injury is going to press one of these young Marlins into duty, maybe several of them, depending on the situation. But watching Lewis Brinson pinch run and Monte Harrison pinch run and, you know, Jazz Chisholm might play a role in this second round so that John Birdie can start some games in center field in lieu of Marte, Magnuris Sierra, who once upon a time was a top 100 guy, who, you know, if I'm doing that list again today, knowing what I know now about like some of the exit velo data that he was putting up at the time, I, pro- I probably do not stick him on there, but he had a big hit today as well. So there are echoes of 2003 with this Marlins club because of how young Lewin Diaz and Jazz Chisholm and, and Brinson and Harrison and Sierra all are. And then with like Miguel Rojas in the like Pudge Rodriguez leader of the team, like veteran type role, which I, I find fascinating. And, mm-hmm. you know, Sixto in like the Josh Beckett, Dontrell Willis, like young gun starters type thing. And, and Lopez in Alcantara as well. So there are some ghosts from 2003 that I think are are in play here, and I do think that the the depth of the Braves rotation might be an issue, and we might have a Cinderella of sorts in Miami. And then I mean, we're still waiting on the Padres and, and Cardinals to finish up, as we said. And I'm curious of if you have any other thoughts on the rest of the NL before we uh, split. I think that regardless of who comes out of this this St. Louis San Diego series I still favor the Dodgers I think that's kind of like the, the stupid like obvious choice like okay you favor you favor the team that won over 40 games in a 60 game season but I'm really just interested to see how this final game plays out given the chaos that has unfolded over the first two games and given the pitching situations of both of the teams at this point after said chaos i'm really just like cuz i don't i don't know how the the padres pitching situation is going to play out today but also i could easily see them hanging another 10 runs on the cardinals so regardless of who comes out i think they're going to be probably exhausted heading into the time facing the dodgers but also i think that it's kind of like they've been through such chaos that there has to be some kind of belief that anything could happen as the ads keep telling us it's October. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think you mentioned earlier about watching Jansen and and Kershaw in the middle of these celebrations over the course of eight years being the only two. And the other thing that I have come around on as, you know, a writer with sabermetric bent and a person who's worked in baseball now for over 10 years with those types of inclinations, I do put more importance now on things like clubhouse culture and not necessarily experience, but the idea that experience might be beneficial for an individual. I think that some people are are fine. Like you put them in the pressure cooker and they are just like a fish in water. Whereas others need that experience. I just don't think that rationality is a thing that applies to things like fear and anxiety in in moments like this. And so I do think that the battle-tested Dodgers think it's their year and are 
stacked from a talent standpoint. Like to have Kike Hernandez and Edwin Rios on your bench and to have three catchers on your roster that are as talented as Smith and Ruiz and Barnes and an elite runner like Gore and have all of these pieces that fit together in this beautiful way where Chris Taylor can move around and you really don't lose anything. I think the Dodgers are absolutely stacked, but I also don't think that the Padres are scared of them. I think they they want a piece of the Dodgers in the worst way, just like Oakland wants a piece of Houston in the AL. And the Cardinals too, like it's not, they're not bad either. They're, that's a really good baseball team that has pieces as well. And yeah, I have no idea how this this Padres Cardinals game is gonna is gonna wrap up, but I I too think the Dodgers are are still the team to beat in the NL and as close to a juggernaut as there is in Major League Baseball this year. Do you have any parting thoughts for us before we turn things back over to producer Dylan? I would like to give a huge, extremely grateful shout out to the Marlins because I was set to do the recap of game three of that series on a Saturday. And now that game three will not be happening. There you have it. This for Rachel McDaniel. I'm Eric Longenhagen. Thanks for joining the two of us on another edition of Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show, consider heading on over to the old iTunes and leaving us a rating, or maybe a review of what you think of the new format. And as always, the best way you can support Fangraphs.com is to get an ad-free membership for yourself or for a gift. And as always, the best way you can support Fangraphs.com is to get an ad-free membership for yourself or for a gift. We will be back next week with more playoff baseball coverage. Until then, thank you for listening.